Hello and welcome to the Story X Story podcast, where we discuss stories across pop culture, plus give you advice on creating your own. It is episode 112 and I'm your co-host, Nigel. I am Tazzy, content creator and co-host. And as always, we are bringing you interesting discussions with diverse voices. And to help us out with our discussion on video games and law is game lawyer at the media and technology firm Sheridan's, Raul Gandhi. Raul, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. Thank you for coming on. We need you. Uh, I know nothing about law. Uh, other than <laughs> I need you. <laughs> law and order, which I know a lot about because I watched a lot of that. But anyway, that's, that is not relevant at all to, the, <laughs> to this discussion. You know, you know, know more about law than me, so because I don't know about law and order. So okay, there we go. All right, so we've established the rankings of who knows what. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's good to know. Uh, we will uh, be talking about yeah the legal side of video games here. Before we get into that discussion, uh, I want to remind people that you can subscribe to Story X Story on Apple Podcasts on Spotify and wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, you can also send us your feedback and questions to feedback at myamada.com. Follow them at us on social media. We are at myamada on Twitter, at myamada TV on Instagram and TikTok, or at Tazzy on everything. One more option, you can join our Studio 77 Discord to be part of the MyMada universe and meet others in the community. Uh, you can also become an, a Studio 77 member to support the work we do at MyMada and get exclusive access to events and artwork and join our games nights uh, as well. So it's been a busy, busy summer. Let's catch you up with what's been happening in the MyMada universe. <laughs> And as part of that summer busyness, um, I will be doing a number of workshop deliveries. So we're going to be doing some gaming workshops. By the time this comes out, I think we would have done half, but it's still time. Uh, if you are in and around Westminster or Kensington uh, boroughs, I'll be doing some free sessions in libraries for uh, younger creatives. So it's been an interesting, uh, I really should be, I think I'm going to make a thing of just bringing up different stories from workshops uh, on the podcast. And I feel like I've said that before and then I didn't do it. But I'm going to promise this time because, boy, give kids some space and they come up with <laughs> the <laughs> maddest of ideas. So, yeah, you can check that out. Um, if you're looking for something to do for younger relative, bring them along, get them designing some games or designing some comic stories. Uh, speaking of comic stories, uh, we have our latest manga, Serious Through the Fog, which is a story about a pandemic I wrote during the pandemic, and it features Blake Serious and his team in their toughest adventure uh, yet. So I've taken that to a, a couple comic conventions and uh, comic and zine fairs this year. Uh, we'll be taking it to maybe... Comic-Con, definitely Thought Bubble. And then we're also going to be working on new stories, one featuring Tazzy's character, which we are still in the process of making, just working out the scheduling on when that whole Kickstarter and comic development process is going to get started. But definitely look out for that. And also happening this month, we will have, or by the time you're listening to this, we'll have had our story club for August. We're going to be talking about the manga Tropic of the Sea by Satoshi Kon with Victor Luca and Lara Callahan. So it's going to be our live stream discussion where we focus on a single comic, manga or video game and basically do a deep dive looking at the narrative, looking at the visuals, the art, looking at the characters and basically just like a book club, both comics and games. I feel we should use that as the tagline 
for Story yeah. Club. I mean, that is how I pitched it. So <laughs> okay, there we go. Done. That, that's the beating. Um, and looking ahead to the future, uh, at the end of this month, we will have our August games nights where Tazzy and I will be playing multiverses with Studio Seventy Seven members from seven PM BST. Uh, you can also check out our past games night highlights on YouTube. Hi, games nights. The the subtitle for this is definitely introduce Nigel to a, a new game have not played multiverses i have got it downloaded and ready to go i did consider playing it and getting some playing time before we did the games nights but then i figured you know what let's just keep the theme running first time i'll play it will be on stream and then we'll see maybe you should just play this tutorial oh it's up to you actually i think you can skip the tutorial so do i have to play the tutorial to get into I don't, the game i, I think know we you had can that. skip it yeah i think okay. you can skip All it right. Okay, I may just check the tutorial just in case, so we avoid that <laughs> that problem. Yeah. That yeah, all right, cool. So I may have played this game a little bit by the time we do it on games nights, but it'll still be fun nonetheless. So definitely uh, check that out. Um, and then, uh, like I mentioned with Story Club, you can also check out the VOD because uh, that will be still up on Twitch if you're listening to this within the first week or when um, the podcast comes out. So something that we're going to be talking about more and more in the coming weeks and months is the Winter Gamepad Online. So we're going to be announcing details of our next Gamepad Online uh, event in September's Gamepad report. So the announcement is that it's happening, but it's going to be a bit different than what we have done previously. Uh, you have to stay tuned to the Gamepad report. Um, definitely check the August one out because we hint a little bit there, um, but more details will be coming. Uh, so that will be live streaming on Twitch as we've done before and date and other details are to come. And last bit of news is from our Do I Look Like a Gamer campaign. We launched the campaign earlier this year in February and the idea is to promote diversity and inclusion in the video games industry. Uh, so make sure you check out looklikeagamer.com. Check us out on social media as well and you'll see the photo campaign that features the 40 players and makers uh, showcasing diversity in the video games industry. You can take a look at the My Matter YouTube for segments of the launch live stream we did where we talk to different people about their background, about the work they do uh, in games. And you can also stay tuned because we have some event news coming. Uh, again, I recommend you check out that September uh, Gamepad Report video. But until then, you can share your story of how you got into video games, whether professionally or as a hobby, uh, as part of the campaign. So you can record and upload your video uh, message on Twitter, on Instagram, TikTok, tag us, my matter on social media, use the hashtag lookLikeAGamer and tell us what is the video game that got you into video games. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to more details on that. And then yeah, keep an eye out for event news, especially if you are a parent of a child that is interested in getting into the games industry. Uh, we wanna make sure as well as raising awareness or career paths in the industry for young people, we also want to let parents, family members, educators know that the games industry is is there, is valid, it exists, and there are uh, definitely uh, paths, uh, pathways into that. If you are um, working with a creative young person, 
or maybe a legally minded young person. So this could be an inter interesting discussion coming up. Uh, so the campaign is proudly sponsored by Rock City Studios and Splash Damage. Uh, and we're thankful for their support because that has allowed us to put on the events that we have so far and make sure that they are free for people to attend. All right, that is pretty much what's been happening in this, uh, in this universe. Let's get to today's discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about lore and video games. So if you have enjoyed a video game, you have in some way feel benefited from the fact that there is a big legal presence in the video games. But it's not always something that gets spoken about or gets a lot of focus, but it is very, very important. And I think we're going to be touching on the whole kind of uh, raft of acquisitions and mergers and everything. Uh, and it's something that uh, is going to come more into focus and change the way gaming uh, is done, I feel, uh, in the coming years. But we have Raul here. Uh, before we get into the details of any particular story, just want to take some time to get to know you a bit more and find out how did you get to where you are? So, you know, mm. we, we talked about like the legal side of games. Is that something that you were always aware of? Like, how did you get into the legal side of the video games industry? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question, because I'll be honest and say I actually wasn't like that wasn't my goal. Like, I didn't intend to go into the legal side of gaming. I actually wanted to be a developer. So when I was about 15 years old, I, you know, I told my dad that I was interested in gaming and maybe wanted to become a developer. So he basically bought me this like program, which it's sort of like an interactive step-by-step -step tutorial of how to make games in a program called Basic. So you basically just follow the instructions and you'll it'll pop out a game on the other end and supposedly teaches you about all the different steps involved. And I spent one of my summer holidays like trying to get to grips with it. And it turns out that I was absolutely shocking at programming. Well, I just... <laughs> did not have the skills you know i'd make mistakes in the code and i'd have to go back and try and fix it but i wouldn't be able to find what was wrong and i would get frustrated it's a semicolon it's always a semicolon. <laughs> yeah it's always a semicolon and <laughs> essentially i got to that you know, at that age i thought if i can't program then i can't be a developer obviously that's not the case and i'm sure mm. you know in your discussions and previous podcasts you've talked about all different realms and jobs in the games industry and, and ways to get into it but when i was at that age i thought well the dream's over i'm not going to be a developer because i also don't have any art or like animation skill so in my mind that was done deal probably not going to happen so went to university studied i actually studied history as my undergrad and then started looking to do a law conversion course and then while I was at uni, I had this eureka moment where I thought to myself, hold on a second, video game companies are businesses, surely they need lawyers, right? That must be a thing. And so it literally was as simple as me going into Google and typing video game law. And just that, that's, I started going down the rabbit hole, looking into it, like what kind of law I need to specialize in, what legal issues there are, what kind of law firms operate in this sector you know like where could i potentially apply to to get work and yeah then i just started started emailing people and slowly starting my journey so that, that's kind of how it mm. began i love that kind of discovery of people who like wait a minute the games industry needs insert skill that i can do <laughs> this, is a, this is a real business it's not all just fun and games <laughs> that's great i also like props to dad <laughs> mm, yeah 
<laughs> oh yeah, he he. I mean, I have to say, like my real start with gaming started a lot with my dad because one of my earliest memories was sitting in his lap while he was playing Age Vampires oh, cool. and just watching. And he loves RTS games, so he plays like Rise of Nations, Command of Command and Conquer. He never played StarCraft, but he was really into Age Vampires. And I just one of my earliest memories was just yeah, sitting in his lap watching him play and having no idea what was going on. <laughs> and then it was really him who got me my first games console. That was a PS One when I was like seven or eight years old, and it really just started from there. But yeah, so props to dad. Thanks, dad. Yeah. Shout out to dad. <laughs> Support of parents for like uh, getting into the games industry. We need more of those. Oh, there, there were definitely like fights down the road. You know, when it got yeah. to like me going to school and doing my GCSEs, that those those discussions were always had about screen time. But I think it all worked They're out valid. in the end. They're yeah. valid. They're 100%. valid. They're, They're necessary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that you you made it. You got you figured that you figured out that connection. Got into the yep. legal side of video games. Like, what is the what is the like the day to day? Because you mentioned like you know it's not all fun in games, and I imagine when people there are people who might think you know working in video games or oh, you just you're just playing games all day, right? But you're in a different space. So like, what does your day to day look like generally? I I guess there is no real like general day to day, but I can sort of tell you about some of the things that I do. So mainly I specialize in commercial contracts, IP, which is intellectual property, and then funding advice. So we we act for all different types of organizations in the games industry, but my sort of bread and butter is in independent game developers. So they could come to us at any different stage in their like studio's lifespan. So they could be literally, they formed a company last week and they've got a name, they've got a concept for their game, and they come to us and say, what's the first thing we do? Like, what do we do now? I'm like, you know, we're making the game, but legally, what do we need to do? That that can sometimes come up and they'll just, we'll have an initial call with them, go through all the different things they may want to consider, and then, you know, we'll help them with different legal things. Sometimes they're a bit more developed and they have certain questions for us about very specific topics. And, you know, I think we're going to get into that a bit later. You know, for example, negotiating a publishing agreement or helping them with certain types of legal contracts. On the funding side, you know, sometimes they're getting investment in from somewhere. So we will help them on, you know, advising them on loan agreements or, you know, investment agreements. And sometimes I'm dealing with, you know, some of the more contentious stuff that, so some of the stuff which is a little bit more litigious, where we're talking about, you know, cease and desist letters. If someone's infringed our copyright, we will be sending them letters and, you know, potentially threatening to take them to court, depending on the seriousness of the issue, you know, trademark infringement, things like that. But again, we're going to talk about all of this, I think, in yeah, more detail. Yeah. But yeah, so day to day, there is no sort of general day to day. It's just kind of mixture of any of those kinds of things. Okay. Yeah, actually, you reminded me about the um, the cease and desist. I, I remember a, a while back. I, I, I thought, thought you were about to say, "Oh, we got one of those." No, no, no. <laughs> I, didn't, like, oh, I didn't get one. But I remember having a conversation. Like, some I got a call, and someone was saying, like, it wasn't a cease and desist. It was a it was a threat to cease and desist because our event name was similar to theirs. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, that was like a oh okay. I yeah, it was... can be scary getting letters like that. And um, I mean, again, that's we we also you know advise on the other side of things like that. So if you know, sometimes we're the people sending out the cease and desist, mm. and then sometimes we're, you know, our client is 
very worried and he sends it to us saying, we just got this in the mail, like, what do we do? Like, this is scary. Um, and we try our best to help them out. I think as a content creator, like, cease and desist, cease and desist are, like, the scariest thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not, not great. At any point, you're like, I don't know, like, what, obviously, like, copyright issues and stuff. Yeah, is, no, 100%, especially on, like, things like YouTube and Twitch when, you know, VODs are they're threatening to take VODs down or demonetize videos or you're getting copyright strikes on your channel and if you get three they shut your channel down it's like things like that can be very scary for content creators and I mean I should say off the top like I don't only act for independent game developers we also do some work for sort of mid-level publishers I also advise content creators and sort of influencer agencies on some work on that side and I also do a little bit of esports work as well because my background prior to joining the firm that I'm at was I I was part of the in-house legal team at ESL, which is like a big esports tournament okay. operator. So I, I kind of have a bit of experience across traditional games, esports, and then influencer content creation stuff. Yeah. All right. You got a good good mix in there. And I think, yeah, hopefully over this discussion we'll like open some eyes in terms of like the the legal side of whatever you're doing, whether it is making games, content creation, uh, or in esports. Alright, so I did want to start with the making games, so the indie developers. Something that was pretty high profile uh, and relatively recent was the situation around. Uh, I'm going to say Jake Friend. I don't know. I'm assuming his real name is Jake. But <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. And the whole situation around their publishing deal, which was made public by them and sort of highlighted maybe the, the imbalance in, in power, in, in certainly, I guess, knowledge uh, when it comes to signing contracts. And I think it's something that, you know, particularly for indie developers, not to generalize too much, but kind of the focus is on the creative. It's like, we're going to make this game. We've got this cool idea. We want to put it out. But there's that like very real legal side that also needs to be considered. So I'll kind of summarize it and then throw it to you Raul and then you yeah, just ask, like you just make sense of, of what it is so sure this is from Kotaku is one of the many stories uh, written about this but it just describes it as uh, when a one-man team Jake friend was approached with an offer to invest half a million Canadian dollars into his hand-drawn action adventure game Scrab Dackle he discovered the contract terms could see him signing himself into a lifetime a lifetime of debt losing all rights to his game and even paying for it to be completed by others out of his own money. So already having raised 44,000 um, or plus 44,000 uh, Canadian dollars from crowdfunding, the investment would have seen his game released in multiple languages. Sounds good. With full Q&A testing, also good, and launched simultaneously on PC and Switch. He just had to sign a contract, including clauses that would leave him financially responsible for the game's completion while receiving no revenue at all, should he breach its terms. So there's a whole tweet thread uh, that you put out at the time. There are multiple yeah. stories, so I'll put that in the in the show notes. But from a legal perspective, Raul, what was your reaction to this story? Did it, did it sound familiar? Or was it like, oh, that yeah. is different? I mean, first of all, I mean, I think it might be helpful just to kind of discuss for people who might not be aware like how a publishing agreement works yeah so let's start there. generally speaking again everything you have to take with a pinch of salt because every situation is slightly different but generally speaking the role of the developer is to develop the game and the reason that they may go to a publisher is because they will do different they have different functions and different parts of the business that can do things 
that a developer might not be able to do by themselves. One of the big things is funding. So, you know, the way that games are made, as many of you probably know, can take anywhere between like, you know, six months to five years to develop a game. And during that time where you're developing it, you're not generating any money from it. You know, maybe nowadays there are things like early access where you can kind of put alpha and beta builds out there and start generating a little bit. But generally speaking, if you're going from development to full commercial launch, you are not generating any revenue until you start selling copies of the game. So a publisher can come in and sort of bridge that gap by providing you with some money. And in relation to that, as well as providing money, they can do different functions like you mentioned, like they can help you with QA. So that's testing the game, making sure that there are no game breaking bugs in it. They can help you with localization, which is, you know, translating the game into different languages. They can help you with porting. So that's getting the game out onto multiple platforms and, you know, other things like marketing and advertising, you know, publishers, depending on their size, have big resources. They have relationships with different outlets and they, you know, they've got the the means to to help distribute your game and get it out there into the world. So that's why, you know, most of the time developers will have a publishing agreement. You know, in, in some rare cases, you may be able to do all of those things yourself and you get the, the dream of self-publishing the game. And the reason that that's the dream is because generally speaking, the way that the money works is once the game comes out, you will start generating revenue from sales of the game and you will split that between the developer and the publisher. Mm. So that's that's usually called a revenue share. And that's generally how it works. So if you self-publish, then you get to keep all the money yourself. So that's generally how it's structured. Just, you know, hopefully that helps people kind of understand what a publishing agreement is. Yeah. And yeah, there's, there's loads of different variables that you can consider when you're looking at an agreement like this. So one of the things is how far along is the game. So sometimes a developer may literally have a piece of paper, you know, PowerPoint presentation with a concept for their game. And that's it, you know, just just an idea. And they're looking for funding to get it off the ground. How likely is that to get funding? Though <laughs> that that's that is difficult because okay. it is a very high risk for a publisher. Usually, they'd want to see a bit more, but mm. you know, if they really believe in the idea, or you know, they're really invested in the success of the project because they yeah. think it's going to be huge, then well, you've got a track record. If you're you're someone yeah, who's got that's a, the like, other thing. That was one of the other delivers. factors I was going to talk about for sure. Track okay. record. But yeah, so a lot of the time it depends like how far along the game is because maybe the developers have managed to make a prototype by themselves and you can show that to a publisher and they're like, oh, this looks pretty good. Yeah, we'll, we'll fund it. And, you know, the more of the game the publisher sees, the less risky it is for them because, you know, the more developed it is, the, the better an idea they have of what the game is going to end up being. So, so on that side, it's mainly about risk. Yeah, as you said, track record is important. If the developer has a great track record then it's less risky for a publisher so that always helps but again a lot of for a lot of indie devs you know if they're releasing their first game it, it can be really difficult to get funding and then there are some again the terms of a publishing agreement can really depend uh, or they can really change based on whether or not the publisher is actually providing funding because in some cases the developer says the game's actually done we just need help you know, with localization and QA. And then in some cases, the publisher may not provide any money. They just kind of, you know, the the they'll say, right, we'll help you with these services and then we'll take some money when the game comes out. 
So the the revenue share may not be as uh, well. The the way that the revenue share is structured will differ based on like what services the publisher is actually providing. Mm. So yeah, I think I think that that's sort of hopefully like a kind of small intro, short introduction to how publishing contracts work. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, what I think about this story. So I've I've read the thread, and I think there are some things in there that are absolutely you know not ideal for a indie independent developer and i say that like in loose terms because yeah some of those things you definitely do not want to be agreeing to but then in other situations to play devil's advocate you can see from the publisher's situation why yeah yeah and i think that's the one of the things to consider in not just this but in in the general kind of dynamic of developer publisher yeah is there's a there is an element of risk on both sides. I know sometimes yeah. you can feel like you can look at publishers that they've got all the money, they've got all the power, they're not taking any risk. But, you know, especially if it's a smaller publisher, there is an element of risk because you've got people who may not, you may may not finish the game. It may, you know, there's yeah, absolutely. a bunch of things yeah. that can happen and you're investing, whether it's strictly financial or just like time or resources, you're investing in something that doesn't pan out. So there's, there's an element of like, we have to protect ourselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there was a statistic I read like, you know, a couple couple weeks ago where apparently it's something like 37 games come out every single day on Steam. Wow. And I mean the equivalent of that. And mm. but then again, that also made me think, I bet you there are probably like another 60 games per day that never even make it to the platform because, mm. you know, development gets canned or it doesn't look like the project's going to work. I don't know those figures off, but you know, I don't know what those figures are, but I'm sure there are loads that just never even make it to the platform. And again, publishers, yeah, you know, they might be putting money in, the project doesn't work out, and then they just have to can it and they've just lost money on it. So yeah, there is an element of risk on both sides. And ultimately the the publishing contract should reflect both sides and, and, you know, try and make it equal. But yeah, I mean, going back to some of the things he's mentioned, yeah, there are definitely problems with him having to pay back money that's already been given mm. if he breaches a term because again as an independent developer especially if you're a solo developer like i understand uh jake friend is from that thread he he's using this money not only to develop the game but essentially it's his like it's his only source of income so it's his livelihood you know he's using this money to also buy food to sustain himself you know pay his rent on his property so mm. these are all things that he can't, you know, they're sunk costs, like you can't get those back. So if, you know, if this amount of money he was offered, I guess one one thing I should roll back quickly on is the way that a lot of publishing contracts work is they're not going to give you the money in a big chunk. The publisher's not usually not going to say, here's half a million Canadian dollars, go ahead and make the game. It will be broken up into what we call milestones, where they will set out a schedule in advance, you know, like a, a schedule of, you know, on this date, within three months, we want to see X build of the game. And that build needs to include one fully completed level. And you need to have written the script for that level. And then in three months time, we want to see full animation of the characters in that environment. And in Milestone 3, we want to see X, Y, and Z. And so you'd build out sort of you know, the progression of the game's development. And each time you complete a milestone, the publisher gives you the next chunk of cash. So that that's usually just a way to protect themselves from giving someone half a million and then they just run off into the <laughs> sunset and you never see them again. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. But yeah, so again, with those kind of milestones, you, the money that the dev is getting 
they're using this to fund development, but also their lifestyle. So these are all sunk costs that they can't, you know, they can't just give it back because. Yeah, it's not like it's sitting there or it's just doing exactly. nothing. Yeah, ready to be picked up again if needed. It's it's being used to live their life. So yeah, so again, on something like that, I completely agree that you definitely want to remove any kind of obligation to pay back money that's already been spent. So yeah, that that's definitely a big one. One of the things that he talked about was the revenue share. And he said that, I think he said something like, until the publisher gets all of their money back, yeah, he doesn't make any money on sales of the game. Again, that sounds really bad, and for the developer because you know obviously they've 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 put a lot of time into making the game, and as soon as it goes on sale, they may have to wait months and months before anything comes out of it. Because I think in the thread he said he needed to sell something like it'd probably be something like twenty four thousand copies of the game before he would make any money. And, you know, as we know, with indie games, there are so many games coming out there. It's really difficult to to get that spotlight. And, you know, sometimes for some for some indie games, selling 10,000 copies is a huge achievement because it's really difficult to get spotted in this environment. And, you know, if that was the case, if he only sold 10,000 copies then he wouldn't make any money from the deal, which is a really difficult position to find yourself in. But I think again depending on how much risk the publisher has taken on you know if they're if they're providing this i don't know at what level the development of the game was when he was approached about this but you know a lot of the time i've seen contracts where that's the deal it's like look we're taking a risk on this project we want to make sure we get our money back especially if the developer doesn't have a track record because the game wouldn't exist without the publisher's funding so I, it is it is quite you know maybe not normal but it, it's not super unusual to see something where the publisher says we'll recoup all of our money first before we split anything with you mm. and that's just sort of something that we see in the industry it's not ideal um sometimes you know depending on the size of the studio uh we try our best to negotiate something where you know maybe the developer will get 5 to 10% initially like as soon as the game comes out and that will help them keep the lights on in the studio, you know, make sure that they can actually operate because they might be straight away working on their next game. And and they need more for that. Yeah, exactly. Because one of the other things he mentioned was about payment terms and how they he would get paid 30 days after each quarter, which basically works out to something like 120 days before he would actually see any money. So you could be in a situation where you, you your game comes out, it takes six months to reach 24,000 copies sold, and then after that, that first month where you are actually generating revenue for the developer, it will take 120 days to come into your account. That mm. might be a real problem for the developer in terms of cash flow. And so, again, I, I feel like we're getting too businessy into all the terms, but <laughs> yeah. But no, we, is that kind of aspect where he even mentions it in a thread where he talks he makes a distinction between being an individual and a corporation and just looking through the, uh, the thread and at the time hearing about the story where it's that you're dealing with a, a company and a, like in a company like everyone's getting paid everyone's getting their their salary and everything and they're dealing with you an individual and your life doesn't work the same as a corporation and then what I, or one of the things i got from this is there sometimes there's that imbalance of understanding 
maybe not from an individual level, but on a you know contract level that you know I'm an individual, I have bills to pay and everything, and I'm dealing with a company that doesn't exist in the same way. If that makes sense, yeah. I just wanted to ask something because it because the publisher approached him mm. with the contract. I just wanted to know, like, how like is there sort of a trend in what normally happens? Is it normally the publisher, or is it that approaches the developer, or is it like a fifty fifty split? It could absolutely be both. I don't know necessarily if it's fifty fifty, but um, you know, sometimes a game might go viral because again a lot of developers will do sort of work in progress like tweets or social media posts and things like that where i I said tweets because i use twitter more than anything else but a lot of the times on my timeline i'll see independent game developers putting out little gameplay videos of some feature they're working on or something really cool and it just goes viral and publishers will look at that and be like oh that looks like it's picked up some traction let me approach them and see if they need funding because again it's really difficult to get your game highlighted so you know that there are there is a job like a job title at publishers which is called game scout and literally their job is to look at game proposals or find games are in development that they the publisher may want to sign and you know be involved with publishing so there are people out there who are literally looking to find like the next big thing so sometimes, yeah, the publisher might see something and approach the developer. But again, the developer may, I would say, in my experience, a lot of the time, it's the developer who's looking to publishers because for them, they need funding. And, and that's, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of the time what we see. But it can be both, for sure. Interesting. Okay. And also, can I just take a moment to highlight that I uh, didn't know a game scout existed yeah i know yeah i'm sure a lot of our listeners didn't know that that was a role in gaming so it's absolutely i I have a friend of mine who uh, works for a big publisher i'm not sure if i want to say any names or specifics because i've I've not asked this person if i if that's okay but basically her role is to look at game proposals that come in every day and then also just look out for you know indie games or games that may be being independently developed where they can step in and provide assistance, whether it's QA, funding, localization, porting. So yeah, that is a pretty cool job. It sounds awesome. You literally just have to read proposals about new games and kind of try and pick what you think is going to fit in with your publisher's portfolio. So, you know, they they might be, you know, certain games like, I'm trying to think of publishers, but, you know, certain publishers have like a style of game that they put out, like Devolver Digital, you know, they always have really like crazy, wacky games and they're they're on the lookout for stuff that fits into their portfolio and you know if you're a game scout at devolver that could be your your role to just try and find something that fits and something that you'd want to publish so yeah it's pretty it's pretty neat cool all right so so going from that to look at the content creation side and but i just want to leave with one uh, other piece of that twitter thread from jake friend because i feel it's relevant from a content creation side and he says that no matter what you're told conversationally and regardless of if the people you're speaking with mean well which they probably do the legal terms are the only guarantees you have as to how the business has to treat you and the business will never put you first in a pinch so i bring it up not to because it i guess it can come across as quite cynical like everyone's out to get you that kind of thing i don't bring it up in that sense but just as a reminder that you know, if you're game developer, content creation side of things that when you sign these like agreements and contracts, that's that's the guarantee like right there. So the person you uh, are speaking with individually might be fine, but 
they were going, the company's going to revert to the contract. So that's why it, it pays to pay attention to that side of it because that's ultimately what uh, will be used for or in some cases against you. You've always got to remember that the person you're talking to might no longer be in the company. Oh, that's like mm, yeah. in a week. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that literally that is the the contract is the the guide on how to <laughs> communicate with you. No, absolutely. And I think one one final thought on that is if you are an indie developer out there, you absolutely can negotiate your publishing agreements. Like any publisher who says these are standard terms or this is how it always is, other developers have signed this, just disregard that and, you know, tell them like, you know, every every publishing contract is different because it all it's a it's based on the circumstances of the specific game you're developing, what stage it's at, who the developer is, what funding they have, how far they are through the process. All of those things matter. So there's no such thing as a standard publishing agreement. You absolutely can negotiate these points. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not comfortable doing that, that's what people in my job are there to help with. You can come and speak to us and we can help you. Sometimes part of my job is just explaining a contract in plain English. You know, developers, you know, they have no reason to have an understanding of legal language. So sometimes it's just daunting to read some of these contracts, which can be like, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages long. And they're just are lost and they're like i'm just gonna sign this because they're gonna give me money don't do that if possible please try and read it and if you can't understand it or you're, you're struggling with it you know there are people who like such as myself or other law firms out there who specialize in this kind of thing and they can help you with that but um yeah re- make sure you read those contracts and you know make sure you understand them i guess and specialized is very important uh i had to sign a contract but like showed it to like a friend essentially that studies law but they were like oh yeah and i was like you don't know content creation do you <laughs> but then showing it to a specialized content creator not a person that works in law and they're like yeah you're gonna want to question these points here mm. oh yeah 100 <laughs> like, percent. Oh i mean it's like i i get that a lot when when people ask what i do and i say i'm a lawyer and then you know they make that casual joke. They're like, "Oh, you can help me get out of trouble if I, you know, if I get into a pinch." And I'm like, "Well, like I don't really do criminal law. Like if you went to jail, like you're on your own, buddy. Like I can't help you with that. You know, it's like that's that thing of like, you know, doctors have their own specialisms. You wouldn't want a brain surgeon doing heart surgery because as you know, they're still they're both doctors, but they're completely different things and they're super specialists. So yeah." Make make sure you you're speaking to the right person. I think you've actually covered like both of you covered a couple of the questions that I had in terms of content creation side because I was going to ask what are some of the biggest mistakes that like self employed certainly content creators make when dealing with the law side and and I feel one is not reading uh, the contract reading yeah (laughs) not negotiating (laughs) and not thinking you have the power to negotiate negotiate you have to suddenly put on like you have to whenever you're like offered a contract or offered like an affiliate ship or anything like this you suddenly have to like do the thing that you're really really bad at which is thinking that you're worth <laughs> what you are actually worth yeah. and that you, that you are meant to be there and you you like oh boy if you can just for like just long enough to pay attention to this contract put on the hat that makes you worthy 
because you need to be wearing it at that point because yeah, you need absolutely. to know your value and be able to set your boundaries and even if you're only temporarily doing it just to get the right contract signed <laughs> you have to you have to like put like live in a persona at that point like i don't know do whatever you have to do to not be yourself for those few moments <laughs> that's that's actually i was thinking about that recently just like for that for that brief time uh, i was thinking of it in the terms of like pitching in that brief time you just gotta be that person <laughs> for that moment yeah you gotta like, big yourself up sometimes you know mm-hmm. yeah pick this your favorite superhero done. and you are them for the duration of that <laughs> difficult task i like that advice is is there anything else Raul, that you, you think i feel those are two big ones but anything else that you think should be considered or mistakes that are made yeah absolutely i mean i i totally appreciate because when you're a content creator especially when you're sort of a small content creator and you're you're getting your start and you know you're getting your first brand deal or your first sponsorship it can feel very much like oh my god i have to sign this because it's my you know the first rung of the ladder i need to get a sponsor i need to you know i'm going to get some free equipment out of it i might get paid a little bit you know that kind of thing can be really exciting because you feel like you're finally making it but yeah you just have to be careful that you know you're reading your contract you understand what it means and you're not hamstringing yourself in the future so i can give i can give an example of one which i'll keep it you know vague without using any names but um a friend of mine was basically approached by a gambling company who said all you have to do is come into our offices play valorant for eight hours a day and our clients, so the, you know the gambling company's clients, will bet on the outcome of the Valorant matches. All you got, but all the player has to do is come in there and play, and we're gonna pay you. And I was, he was super excited about it. You know, he was, oh my god, this is great! Like he just graduated from university. All I have to do is play Valorant for eight hours a day. You know, he was a great player of the game. He was super excited. And then I looked at the contract, and there were some really, really bad things in the. For example, they can use his image rights forever. So for the rest of his life, his name, his image, like his, you know, his gamer tag, his face, any of that stuff can be associated with that brand. And things like that, when you're early in your career, when you give away those kind of rights, it can really cause problems later down the line because you may get a bigger sponsorship offer from someone who doesn't want you to be affiliated with gambling companies and then you're kind of stuck because you have to find a way to get out of your previous contract and maybe that's not possible so you might lose opportunities later down the line and yeah it's just about trying to yeah read understand the contract make sure you know what it means and sort also kind of what implications it could have in the future and yeah yeah that long-term view of of what you do Mm. as well yeah that is uh, good, good advice. And uh, I'm going to ask a question for the maybe any parents and uh, listening and, and thinking that, you know, my child is like content creation or Twitch streamer and I don't understand it. And I'm not sure if this is worthwhile. I was wonders is from your perspective, like seeing like how people operate on both sides, content creators and the brands and organizations that they might work with. Is this something that you'd say is worthwhile going into from an at an early stage in a career or something you can come back later to from a uh, in an indirect kind of path 
I mean, honestly, I think content creation specifically is so personal to whoever's doing it. I don't think there's any sort of black and white answer saying, oh, yeah, it's way better to get in early or, you know, when you're younger, because, I mean, there, there may be things about if you start earlier, you know, you've got more, you've got like more time to like build up your following. And, you know, if you because right now like I, I do a little bit of streaming on Twitch, but I also have my full time job and I just don't have the time to put into content creation. But maybe if you start younger, you may have more time to do that. But again, like each person's an individual, like everything depends on their circumstances, like what they want, what type of content they want to put out there. You know, ev there's so much variety in what content creation means. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be gaming. Like, you know, I've seen, I, I heard about a person who does live streams of talking about being a mother and sort of just motherhood. And it's, it's, it's really like gained traction and it's got like a lot of followers. And this person started it when she was in her like early, early, I want to say early 40s or maybe late 30s. But it's like, it's never too late to start. And there's no necessarily like disadvantage of starting late. So I think it's just, you know, whatever stage you're at in life, whatever content you want to put out there, I think, you know, if, if you can make it work, then there's no real disadvantage. So I agree with a lot of the sentiment of that, because I was going to say a similar thing, like it just happens whenever it happens. There's no, there's no one way into content creation, it's content creation. And there's so many different, what being a content creator is, because there's being like a self-employed content creator, or there's being someone who makes content for a company or a brand where you can be like directly employed by them but also like i mean this is my personal opinion but i believe that if you're going into content create creation you need to think about it's not like oh i've watched whoever and i think like streaming is great so i just want to do streaming have something to create they're yeah. like going into content creation just because you see people that are content creators is one of the worst ways to get into content creation and whenever i see people that start like that they might rise quickly but they fall quicker right. you will crash uh, it's a very mentally straining thing to do and it is a hundred percent something you have to be passionate about one of the main aspects of making content creation so you either have to be like really into that actual content you're creating or you have to be really into the business side of things yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i totally agree with that i think i think that makes total sense and like i guess one of the things you don't think about is you know if you are you know a youngster or you're thinking about going into content creation you've got your your favorite streamers who you know might be you know you you hear about some of these influencers making like millions of pounds and you know people like ninja or you know dr disrespect or pokemon or whatever like this is such a small percentage like a minuscule percentage of all the creators out there like if you because i think the other advice on that is don't go into content creation if you're doing it for the money <laughs> oh yeah 100 percent. like you gotta do it for the passion <laughs> yeah 100 <100%. laughs> percent. and might not work mm. and really and truly a lot of the people who are successful in content creation have a second thing going or an alternate alternative goal or just a lot of support and people don't realize how business-minded a lot of successful content creators are even if the content creators themselves don't see themselves as business-minded when you look yeah. at what they do 
they're actually doing like they're, they're entrepreneurs and the, the decisions they're making and the, it's because their their base is an entrepreneurial base and those kind of circles are what what encourages them and as well like don't you have to develop so many skills as a content creator so don't focus on like one skill if you, you the rest of your life will contribute to content creation mm. unless you're just really talented at it <laughs> and really good like go for it but my mum's over 50 and she's doing better at content creation than I am. She just started. <laughs> <laughs> I am her advisor, though, and I will be opening <laughs> that service at some point in the future. Amazing. <laughs> That's great. Very cool. All right. So we've spoken about the, the individual aspect of games and law. Before we end, I wanted to take a, a wider view and just look at the the industry because this year, and I guess it started last year uh, in particular, we've seen a lot of acquisitions. So one company buying out another, uh, we've seen it over and over and over again. And it's not a completely new thing, but it does feel like we're at a stage where it's happening a lot and it's happening at a, a larger and larger scale. So, I mean, we've seen uh, obviously Microsoft's acquisition of I mean, let alone Activision uh, Blizzard. Uh, let's not forget they <laughs> bought Bethesda or, or ZeniMax and Bethesda, and all that comes with that. We've seen Sony taking over Bungie. We've seen the Embracer Group quietly eating up different properties like some of Square Enix's Western IP. A bunch that I'm probably forgetting. So, again, we have a a legal person on to make help us make sense of this. So, before we get into like maybe what this means for the industry one of the things that struck me as i was watching i think it was particularly as i was seeing the the sony acquisition that came in a news cycle relatively speaking fairly soon after microsoft's acquisition of activision blizzard or the the start of the process and some of the reactions i've seen is like oh sony are reacting to what microsoft are doing but these things take time so oh Absolutely. Yeah. What is the general process of a, of an acquisition at this scale? I mean, a lot of the time, I mean, the, the process is very much sort of, you know, you might have a meeting between the company, like, you know, internally, you may say, look, this is what our goal for our company is, and we need to figure out how we're going to achieve it. And in some cases, it means they might think we don't have the skill set to achieve what we need. So we're going to go out there and find a team who can do it. And I think one of the interesting, you know, you mentioned Sony, they they very publicly said that they're currently working on 10 projects, mm. which are live service games. Mm. And whether or not what you think of that it is what it is, that's one of their goals going forward. They want to put out into the world 10 live service games. But if you look traditionally at what type of exclusive games they've been putting out from their first parties, God of War, Last of Us, Spider-Man, they're all single player narrative driven games. So that makes that you know you if you look at the the sort of first party talent that Sony have multiplayer games may not be their strongest suit you know they don't necessarily have an in-house team with a big track record on big multiplayer live service games so when you think about why did they acquire Bungie what game did Bungie make oh this little game called Destiny which is a huge online multiplayer game as a service Maybe the reason they've done this is, you know, to bolster their multiplayer talent. So again, the way that an acquisition might come about is Sony's thinking about, right, this is what we want to do. Who's a potential team that we may want to acquire 
or you know who's got the talent to help us do this and then they go ahead and they just get in touch with you know it could literally be a meeting a ceo you know ceos talk to each other and say look you know they present an offer to them they negotiate it there are lawyers it's all behind closed doors and once an agreement is reached you know it gets publicly announced and you know there's a whole process behind it where you know once when you're buying a company there's there's a lot that goes into it because you're not just buying the ip you know you might be buying or you know it brings with it loads of other costs so you know you you're also going to be taking on all of the staff you know i mm. i believe from that sony acquisition a billion dollars of that revenue was to maintain or to to ensure that all the bungee staff stayed at the company so yeah. it was like a retention fee because at the end of the day the reason they're buying bungee is for the staff not the ip necessarily yeah i did i do remember seeing some tweets of like oh sony paid uh what was it three uh, billion for destiny and like <laughs> sometimes i see things on social media and it's like this person does not know what they're talking about yeah. uh, and i know yeah. i just said like the sky is blue but it's just it just strikes <laughs> me it's like i just saw that like you're you're really not thinking about this this isn't about destiny yeah uh yeah 100 percent. destiny isn't the only game that i mean different people right but bungee <laughs> existed yeah, yeah, yeah. before destiny <laughs> oh yeah for sure for sure <laughs> there's a there's a um there's a reason why yeah someone's gonna spend that much money on a company like they didn't buy destiny <laughs> yeah <laughs> they bought bungee <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah exactly exactly but yeah so yeah again like the process behind it yeah so like you're also buying all the staff inevitably you'll be paying you'll have to be paying all their salaries going forwards and you have to consider all these different things and when you do that i guess one of the big procedural things that happens in an MA deal like a merger and acquisition deal is something called due diligence where before you make the purchase you want to know about how that company operates and what that usually involves is they're going to give you a bunch of paperwork and you're going you're going to have to get lawyers to review it and make sure there's no hidden issues that you're kind of concerned about cuz for example Bungie may have taken out loan of like a billion dollars I, I don't know just making up random numbers here they may have taken out a bank loan of a billion dollars and they've not repaid a penny of it if sony was to buy them and they had no idea that that loan existed suddenly they've taken on the the sort of obligations of that loan themselves and now suddenly they're they they might be having to owe like a billion dollars to some bank again completely random numbers but it's kind of on sony as the purchaser to kind of do their research into the company and that's the bit that can take some time because depending on how big it is there's loads and loads of things that they'll need to review loads of different documents and yeah it's it's that's the stage where you know they have to really try and keep everything under wraps they don't want anything to go public because if you're in the middle of that process and something leaks it becomes really hard to control the messaging because they're like, oh, like, you know, maybe the acquisition doesn't happen. What does that mean? Like, why did this happen? Was there some disagreement? Did something, is there something wrong with this company? So yeah, that kind of stuff can be really difficult. But yeah, yeah the process can be anywhere from six weeks to like six months. I mean, I, I presume the Activision deal with that where Microsoft purchased them, it must have been in progress for literally months and months. Like it's not, and again with Sony, it's the same deal with Bungie. It's not something you can just react to. Yeah. It's not like a two-week job. And you're like, oh man, they're buying them, right? Just I'm just gonna pull out my wallet and <laughs> buy these guys. 
but yeah, it yeah. doesn't quite work like that. Okay, cool. That someone with some expertise and knowledge can <laughs> hopefully that uh, <laughs> that helps some people. Um, so, I mean, when I introduced this this segment, I, I listed off a few different acquisitions. Are there any that you've seen that you're like, oh, that's that's surprising? Whether from a just you know, uh, I'm interested in games perspective or from a from a legal perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the the Microsoft one uh, of acquisition of, of Activision and. Zenimax was was a big one because those are you know those are two pretty big third party publishers mm. you know if you think about third party we're talking about Activision EA games you know Square Ubisoft Enix. like the, the the big names in the industry when you bring them in house there is an interesting area of law which kind of gets triggered and we're talking about competition law yeah so basically there is a it's hard to explain it without going to too much like technical detail. But essentially, if I try and put it into like simple terms, the the regulators, like the people who are they're called competition regulators, they essentially want to ensure that there is enough sort of choice for consumers and that there's enough competition in the market so that not one like one person doesn't have all the power. Because let's say, for example, in a really extreme example, Microsoft buys Sony and Nintendo. Right. <laughs> if that happens, there is only one games console because they could just say, right, we're buying Sony, scrapping PlayStation, we're buying Nintendo, forget about the Switch, and we're just going to produce Xboxes. And that's the only games console that exists now, like, you know, from the big three. That might sound, and, and you know, they, they're like, okay, cool. Like, if I like Xbox, that's great news. Hooray. Or so you think. <laughs> so you think, because then there's nothing to stop them from basically doing whatever they want like they could inc they could triple the price of the xbox and you have no alternative like there's nothing you can do or they could basically force everyone to use any like their subscription service they might force everyone to get game pass to play any games which people may not want to do so the whole kind of point of competition law is to stop one company or a group of companies from having so much power that they can influence the whole industry. And so when you come to t talk about things like acquisitions, that's where competition law comes in because like, you know, you're essentially taking away an independent company, you know, Activision Blizzard, and you're joining it with an existing powerhouse company. And that might mean there's less consumer choice out there, you know. For example, there was this whole discussion, I think it was going on recently where Sony were trying to say there is no game out there that can overtake like Call of Duty in the FPS market. Right. Yeah. And then Microsoft, yeah, they made a statement on that. And then Microsoft came back and said, oh, no, no, like Call of Duty is not like so unique. Like none of our <laughs> games, are... they're, they're basically trying to backpedal and say, we don't have too much influence on the yeah. market. Which Quality is just is funny to see. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only a few people playing it. <laughs> but yeah, and I guess generally, yeah, exactly. Like generally looking through like all these acquisitions, it seems like you're getting little pockets all over the world. Like Tencent in China, they recent in the recent news, they they want to up their shareholding in Ubisoft, which will probably happen because you know, when when these kind of deals crop up, you need to present the offer that you know the the offer to purchase a company to the company's shareholders. And if the deal is good, if the, if there's a lot of money on the table, 
which Tencent have a lot of, hmm. you know, it's is going to be really difficult for them to turn something like that down. Yeah. So we may see, you know, Tencent take more control of Ubisoft. They already have control of Riot Games. They already they have like a stake in a bunch of other companies. Are they owners of or part owners of Epic Games as well? Is I think that... yeah. I think they own something like forty percent of oh, Epic yeah. Games. And with Ubisoft, because I was looking into this early, and from what I understand, there's like a because the reason Tencent are invested to the level they are was to stop a previous hostile takeover attempt of Ubisoft. So it's like they have they have to get clearance from the majority shareholders of Ubisoft before mm. they can take any more. I don't know if that's that's yeah. The I mean, case. I'm not sure on the exact details, but basically, from what I understand, Tencent currently own about five percent of Ubisoft. Mm. The biggest individual like shareholder is the the Guillemont family like Yves Guillemont is like the the overall CEO of, of Ubisoft and his family owns something like 15% right and so basically when it comes to because what what was previously happening there with that that take that previous takeover attempt is I, I believe it was a company called Vivendi mm, and yeah, essentially yeah. what they were trying to do is approach all the shareholders of Ubisoft and just purchase all of their shares to the point where they own more than 50%. Because if they own more than 50% of the shares, then they can make all the decisions by themselves, or you know most of the decisions by themselves. So if they start doing that without coming to the big shareholders like, like Yves Cumont's family or Tencent, you know, if, you, if those two together own 20%, that means there are other shareholders that hold 80%. And essentially, Vivendi was just approaching them all and saying, can we buy your 1%? Can we buy your 2%? Can we buy your 1%? And then slowly, they're just building up until they their aim was to eventually get up to 50. And so right. okay. the only way you can really stop that is getting a really big company to take a big stake. And essentially, you, you trust them that they're not going to sell. Mm. If Vivendi approached Tencent, they're going to be like, no, we're not selling. And then it, st- it it kind of blocks them from being able to reach that fifty percent threshold. And it's uh yeah the the legal side is like it's it can get like difficult to understand at, at points. But from my perspective, like this is the industry. This is how how we get our games. How how things happen. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. It's important to have some awareness. So I got a couple questions as well, just to end this whistle stop tour in in the realm of uh, game law. One is like you know what are both. Uh, opinion questions so uh, Tazzy I'll put this to you first but with all this consolidation essentially like do you think this is a a good thing for games because we had like Raul gave the example of you know your, your Xbox owners like oh Microsoft own everything I I have an Xbox that's great is all this consolidation in games a good thing oh my god do you know what I think it's that um short-term gratification is high <laughs> yeah. it goes back to what we were saying earlier yeah. about not yeah, thinking true, in the yeah. long term yeah i like boy like as a as a predominant probably predominantly xbox user i'm like matt i do love having everything on game pass it is really nice but also there's the other half of me that's like i hate this i'm so scared i'm and i'm scared like not because of what like xbox specifically are doing but the fact that this is like it feels like i'm watching some mob film (laughs) (laughs) and the crime lords are (laughs) like sony tencent and microsoft (laughs) and then everyone else is just at the mercy of like whatever these big guns decide 
So, yeah. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, we were, we were talking about earlier, you know, Tencent is based in China. They, they're doing a lot of investment into games. You've also got Saudi Arabia who are doing a lot of investment. So they put a billion dollars into Capcom earlier this year. They put a billion dollars into Nexon, who I believe is like a Korean publisher. And then you've got sort of Microsoft, which basically is like the United States. Like they're, they're the equivalent of the state. They get to be their own country. And you're just seeing these pockets like China, South, like Middle East, Saudi Arabia, and then the US who are just buying up so much. And then you've got Embracer Group in Europe, who's kind of also buying up, but not on the same scale. But yeah, they make loads of smaller acquisitions. You know, like they, they might buy like 14. I think they, there was one day where they announced they'd bought 14 studios for like a couple, like, you know, couple tens of millions. But it's like, yeah, you do get these pockets where it's like, yeah, it's these four factions. You've got China, Middle East, America, and Europe just battling out to just acquire as much as they can, see who can become the biggest and like control the industry. The thing is as well, if you look at like the long, long term effects of this, like we're we're moving into the metaverse, right? So mm, Yeah, we, these we've aren't... gone through this whole podcast without saying metaverse. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wasn't it sure whether to, to drop in. it in or to make that like a whole other <laughs> podcast. It has to come up. <laughs> And like these, these acquisitions aren't like thinking about like next year or the next couple of years. They're oh, thinking yeah. about like the whole shape of what not just the internet looks like, what humanity looks like. Because yeah. let's be real, that is like we're moving into like the next next stage. I mean, society. And, uh, people people yeah. always joke make jokes about Ready Player One and like you know being plugged into like a big like mm. global MMO like. Who knows? No one really knows what's going to happen. 50 years down the line, maybe we could all be living in a in a second virtual life. Like, no one really knows. Yeah, but, but it, yeah. it is worth, like, because Tazzy mentioned about that, the, the, the long-term view. And another thing I'd like to bring up is when, like, when you see gaming decision, you see this announcement's been made and uh, you react, people react to it on, on Twitter or whatever, like, you're thinking today, like, you're thinking... Like we're thinking in that individual level, like, you know, I get up, I eat, I go to work, I do whatever, individual level. These are companies, they're thinking way, way down the line. So if, they've, mm. if they're doing something, it's not for today, it's for yeah. the future. And it's for a future where, again, not to sound overly cynical, but it's a future where they would want some kind of control or influence that ultimately benefits them financially. So it's like, those are the kind of decisions. So as you brought up the, the metaphor, so... A lot of the the idea of the metaverse that people need content, like or even we don't even have to go that far. When you think of streaming and taking it outside of video games, but you you saw like Disney buying up, you know, bought Marvel, Lucas Films, then bought Twentieth Century Fox, and it's like, oh, why are they doing this? Well, streaming is the next big thing. We need content, so we need to make sure we've got this content. It's always like long term thinking, so just something else to consider yeah. for people observing this. Although just one one potential devil's advocate i don't know how applicable it is here but like generally speaking a lot of the time with like how the nature of the industry is it's kind of like circular in that you may have like a mm. a big studio and you know it's very corporate because when when you get to that level of like that size it's a very corporate environment you know they're making you know they're making games that will uh, like reach out to the mainstream audience you know they're looking to sell tens 20 million copies 
because that's what they need to do if they're an Activision or Ubisoft, right? Mm. But you get some creative people within those companies who are like, this environment doesn't work for me. So, you know, once their contracts are up of however long they have to stay, they might like leave that company and spin out and do their own thing. And that's mm -hmm. how like indie studios form. And then you get this circular thing where the indie studios start growing over the next five to 10 years. They might become the next big thing. And then people at that studio are like, oh, this has become too corporate. We're going to make <laughs> the next indie thing. And then they spin out. And there's actually a really great book about this by um, this guy called Jason Schreier, where he literally oh, yeah. wrote, he wrote a book. And I think it's called Press Reset or something like that. And he basically talks about all the all the games that came as a result of either a studio closing down and people like spinning out to do their own thing or people who left an existing studio to spin out and do their own thing. And he was like, you know, we wouldn't have this game if this studio didn't close down and these four people decided that we're going to make yeah. our own company and do something. So, yeah, but I just yeah, think yeah. the scale of acquisitions we're seeing now is bigger than anything that's happened in the past. So, again, like, for example, Bungie, they're locked into their contracts. Those staff have to stay there. I don't know for how many years, but again, I presume it's going to be quite a long time because it's part of Sony's long-term strategy. So we may also be seeing a shift there. But there's always scope for people to leave and do their own thing, and that's kind of how the industry, that's where indies come from. I mean, obviously, there are people who just start their own companies, but there is an yeah. element of spinning out of bigger, bigger I mean, companies. All of the big companies that we know today have lit. That's how a lot of them have started. Like, yeah, I mean, Activision was scrappy. Act, yeah, Activision <laughs> and EA. <laughs> if you yeah. like look at the video games history, man, Atari, the granddad Atari, and everyone just kind of left them. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and to your point, Raul, about like competition, this is why those bodies exist to ensure competition, to ensure that someone can can leave. Massive yeah, and, absolutely. And the conditions I mean, exist to, to build that up again from scratch. Yeah, 100%. I mean, at the moment, the UK competition sort of authority are currently examining this Activision Microsoft acquisition. And they actually have the power to say to them, you know, this is unacceptable. We need you to, we, they, we need you to either reverse this or you're not going to be able to sell any products in our country or in our region. So they do actually have the power to do that, which who knows what that means. Like if, if, if they actually come, that's like a very harsh kind of black and white solution. So there's usually loads of different possibilities of what happens in between. You know, they could say, right, you need to like, you, you, you can't have these studios because that gives you too much power in this genre. So you need to get, you can't have those, but you can have these. Or, you know, they could literally say, yeah, you can't sell anything in the UK because it's like a breach of competition law and, you know, it's too, you're too much of a monopoly and it's not good for the market. So, yeah, it can get pretty crazy. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. But, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure the people at Microsoft and Activision have been advised by some of the top competition lawyers in the world. Yeah, and Microsoft have been here before. Yeah, they've probably been advised that, you know, this is going to go through and they've got their arguments ready mm. to say why they're not, you know, too powerful or why they're not a monopoly. Yeah, they did make a point at the, the time of the announcement to to make sure they said that they are number three in gaming in terms of revenue. <laughs> they, yeah, exactly. They That's a, a huge thing in that. itself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, 
last question because Phil, we could talk about like the legal side of gaming apparently for ages. But... <laughs> <laughs> I've learned so much today. I love it. No, right. So, a uh, question for you, Raul, just with your crystal ball in hand, uh, looking out 10 years, what do you think are biggest or a big legal trend to happen in the next 10 years that will impact the video games industry? I mean, I think it has to be metaverses and. I guess the, the the big thing is sort of again we we've we've gone through most of this podcast without mentioning it, but the other thing is again I, I don't want to say it, say. but <laughs> yeah, like Web three <laughs> NFT crypto stuff. Ooh, I, like, I it, feel it another episode yeah. coming up, <laughs> but I don't want to talk too much about because I think it, it, you can definitely separate metaverses from that stuff. Yeah, like yeah, the, you don't need to have any of that stuff within it. But I think from a legal perspective the big thing is going to be intellectual property within metaverses, you know, because now you've got people who are creating content, people who can create their own experiences in game. So for example, I don't know if you've heard of one called the sandbox, but how it works is you, you basically purchase virtual land mm, and then you yeah. can build an experience in the game and you can sell, you know, you can sell entry into it. It costs you $1 to enter the experience and there are mini games and things you can do there. They can sell virtual items through their experience. And you know now brands are doing the same thing where brands will pay someone to create an experience which is fully branded. And you know all of these things are going to raise like really interesting intellectual property questions. And they're going to raise questions about how do existing laws apply to this? Because when copyright and IP law was written like maybe 30 or 40 years ago that that might be like the last time it was fully updated they didn't envision this being mm. a thing like you know the internet probably just about existed in its earliest form when those laws were written they're not equipped to deal with this advancement and the, the digital age and metaverses and virtual items and assets and all that kind of stuff so it's like it's going to be interesting to see you know whether new laws are coming out to govern how it works or whether they're going to have to backtrack and sort of say these virtual assets as this and that means that this set of laws apply to it you know it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out but yeah it, it looks like the direction everything's going because everyone you know it's, it's, it's huge for, it. for sony yeah it's huge for sony to say we're we're doing we're focusing on efforts on making 10 live service games because after God of War Ragnarok comes out, we don't really know much about what their single player, you know, okay, there's going to be Spider-Man 2 from Insomniac and, you know, that Wolverine game that they also announced with Insomniac. But in terms of single player games after Ragnarok, like, I don't really know what they're working on. It could just be because they've shifted all of their efforts to these games wow, as a service. I hadn't thought of that. So, yeah, it's just one of those things we, we just don't know. So, I, yeah, my crystal ball... Metaverse is going to be huge. Okay, well, my crystal ball says we're going to have to have an episode focused on the metaverse and the, uh, <laughs> the dreaded NFT. Yeah, uh, I'm situation. sorry I brought it up. To be honest, no, I, you know, I, I, yeah. I'd love to have a conversation because I, without going into it, I, I just think there's a there's a there's some validity in there. Just with maybe not seeing it, but just yet. But uh, it'll be good to have a conversation. So maybe we'll have to yeah have you back and and have that oh, conversation. I'd love to. I'd love to be back. This was fun. I've got like a one-liner that I want to say about it. So I'll save it for Go the ahead. episode. No, oh, no, no. I'll save it for the episode. Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> we need an episode just for Tassie's one-liner then. All yeah. right. So, <laughs> so it'll literally be the only thing I actually say <laughs> yeah. about it and everything else will just be me learning. But 
All right. So uh, for people listening, we hope you've learned something. That was our whistle-stop tour through the world of video game and legal issues. So let us know what you think. Let us know what you think of the metaverse. If you have questions uh, for that episode, whenever that that happens, um, do you hate NFTs? It seems like <laughs> everyone does. <laughs> um, let us know. So give us your feedback. Let us know what you think. Feedback at myamada.com. Uh, so before we wrap up this episode, uh, let's just uh, check in with our guests and find out what else they are up to. So before we end, Raul, let's just get a bit more detail on A, where everyone can find you and any latest news or interesting projects that you're working on. So, I mean, I, I personally don't have any sort of projects um, to talk about but if you in terms of finding me you can find me on twitter it's at rahula hoop with an underscore on the end it's just my name and then the letter a and then hoop after it and then my twitch channel is exactly the same it's twitch.tv forward slash rahula hoop with an underscore someone has taken the rahula hoop without an underscore wow. and they don't they don't post anything they don't tweet anything it's <laughs> it's quite distressing to me i don't know how i'm gonna get my hands on the just the vanilla rahula hoop but oh well okay, um, <laughs> but yeah and uh you can on on twitch you can find me just playing indie games or genshin impact which is my, my guilty pleasure i love genshin and then on twitter i'm tweeting about all things games industry Awesome. We'll add links in show notes. Yeah. So thank you for joining us, Rahul, and just like just giving us so many things to think about. Um, I know I feel this is going to be an episode where when I go back and edit, I'll learn more things because I'll just like be listening <laughs> back and like uh, things will sink in. But no, thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to sort of I know we, we've known each other for quite a while, but it's cool to finally come together and and put out some content. And hopefully, hopefully it helps out some people with not, not not even helps out, but just, you know, opens people's eyes, like gives them some sort of knowledge about the industry. And, you know, if anyone has other questions, please feel free to hit me up on, on Twitter and, you know, just DM me. I think my DMs are open. And if you have questions about the legal side of the industry, or you're just curious to learn more, like happy to sort of chat about it. There you go. Slide right in. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if you enjoyed this episode of Story X Story, uh, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating and review wherever you can do that because that helps us reach new listeners and fans of story discussions and video games. And you want to be subscribed for that uh, Metaverse and NFT that the, the most controversial story x story episode uh, ever i'm just going to title it right there um and don't forget to check out our stories on the biomeda website we have a number of titles from our manga uh, universe including the latest serious through the fog you can also join the studio 77 discord and check out our membership for exclusive access to gamepad events and content from the my Matter universe and i mentioned it at the top we have our do i look like a gamer video game representation campaign that is now live we launched that back in september and have done a series of events and have more to come so we started this so that future generations of diverse talent will know that there is a place for them in video games uh, wherever that may be could be law could be you so we want to empower them to be an active part of shaping the future of the video games industry uh, so we've got more plans before the year is out uh, but you can check out the photo campaign featuring the 40 players and makers that kicked off the whole thing and keep an eye on the 
social media, on our gamepad report videos for news, on more campaign events and how to get involved. Uh, as for the podcast, we release new episodes on Thursdays and those include creator interviews, video game discussions like these and deep dives into stories across pop culture. Uh, you can always give us a shout directly. Our email address is feedback at myometa.com. And our website with links to subscribe is mymatter.com forward slash story x story. So until next time, stay safe and please don't hate us for bringing up NFTs in future. (laughs) So just you you have been warned. Take care, everyone.